if you have one, to Luke chapter 11 in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, and we'll read there the verses 1 to 13. This will be the text for the sermon this afternoon. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So far, our reading from God's Word. Prayer is a vital part of the Christian's relationship with God. When God renews a sinner from spiritual death, to spiritual life by the work of the Holy Spirit, then that new spiritual life, it becomes evident in prayer. A true Christian, in other words, is a person who prays. True prayer flows from a believer's union with Christ, the Son of God. And it's fanned into flame by the work of the Holy Spirit of God in the believer's heart. And it expresses itself with the heart's cry of Abba, Father, addressed to God. In other words, true Christian prayer is fundamentally about communion and fellowship with the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the necessary result of being reconciled to the Father through the redeeming death and resurrection of the Son and of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
It's the necessary result of the work of God in our salvation. At the same time, it's our duty according to God's word. Jesus taught his disciples in Luke 18 that they ought, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, pray, that's a command, pray without ceasing. So evidently, prayer doesn't come naturally or automatically even to, even to Christians. We need to be encouraged and even commanded to pray by God's word, don't we? Well, this afternoon, on the basis of God's word, Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 13, and in connection with the Hutterberg Catechism, Lord's Day 45, I may preach the gospel as it relates to prayer under the theme, be encouraged to pray. We'll look first at Jesus' prayer in verse 1 to 4, second, Jesus' parable in verse 5 to 8, and third, Jesus' promise in verse 9 to 13. So be encouraged to pray by Jesus' prayer, Jesus' parable, and Jesus' promise. First, be encouraged to pray by Jesus' prayer. Jesus' own practice of prayer during his life on earth should make us want to pray like him. This is illustrated for us in verse 1 of our text by the example of Jesus' disciple and how he responded to the praying of Jesus. It says, look at verse 1, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. So there's the example of Jesus praying. When he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as as John taught his disciples. Well, reading this verse in context, this is neither the first nor the last time in Luke's gospel that we witness Jesus praying. If you were to read the the whole gospel of Luke in one sitting, then you would notice that there's more times that Luke references Jesus praying, draws attention to Jesus praying. In fact, out of all the four gospels, Luke's gospel gives the most attention to Jesus' practice of prayer. Luke has nine references to Jesus praying. And seven of those references are actually unique to the Gospel of Luke. And so clearly, Luke wants to highlight that Jesus was a man of prayer. So for example, Luke tells us that when Jesus was baptized by John with water and anointed by the Father with the Holy Spirit, at that time he was praying. That's chapter 3, verse 21. Again, Luke mentions in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 16, that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Again, before choosing the 12 disciples in chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then again in 9, verse 18, 9 verse 28 and 10 verse 21, we are told of Jesus praying in total six times before we come to Jesus praying in our text, which is the seventh time. 
Well, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus was a man whose life on earth was characterized by regular prayer to his Father in heaven. And what's the significance of this? Well, Jesus' spiritual life in his human nature, it was strengthened and supplied through communion with his Father in prayer. Jesus, as a true human being, even the perfect human being, he was not, at the end of the day, strictly speaking, self-sufficient. He was entirely God-dependent as a human being. And if that's true of Jesus, then how much more of you and me? Certainly the request of the disciple in verse 1 of our text is appropriate for each one of us. Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that what you and I need? For Jesus, for Jesus himself to teach you and me to pray as he prayed when he walked this earth. To have that same kind of God dependence. Well, this same Jesus now reigns from heaven and he has poured out his spirit on his church also so we may learn to pray. And because Jesus has poured out his spirit on his church, we can learn to pray as Jesus prayed on earth. We can learn to commune with God as our Father and to depend on him for all we need for body and soul. And so you and I can say also today, Lord Jesus, teach me to pray. Teach us to pray. And he will do it just as he did on that day when that disciple asked it of him. Look at verse 2. And Jesus, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, etc. Well, Jesus here teaches his disciples a pattern for prayer. He gives them here a version of the prayer that we call familiarly the Lord's Prayer. And we call it that because it comes originally directly from the Lord Jesus himself. In this sense, it's Jesus' prayer. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus' prayer. It comes from Jesus. It's given by him to us to encourage and equip us to pray with the same kind of priorities as would have shaped Jesus' praying when he walked this earth all except for the petition concerning the forgiveness of sins because he had no sins. Well, notice the priorities that shape this prayer that our Lord Jesus has given us as an example to follow in our prayer. What should be our top priority in prayer? Well, Jesus' prayer encourages us to make relationship with God as Father, the very starting point and basis of our prayers. That's why he begins, Father. As Christians, the relationship that we have with God as our Father through Christ, this is the context in which we bring our desires and petitions before his throne of grace. Because God has become our Father and we have become his dearly loved children in Christ, 
Because of this, we may draw near to him with the assurance of his love and of his willingness to hear our prayers. The Lord's Prayer begins then with our relationship to God as Father. Well, this being the basis and context of our prayer, what should we focus on in prayer? Well, clearly the focus that Jesus brings across in this pattern prayer is the glory of God, the establishing of his kingdom, and the doing of his will, as opposed to our own glory, our own kingdoms, and our own wills, our own desires. He says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, forgive us our sins, Lead us not into temptation. Notice how the balance of the Lord's Prayer, it tilts heavily in the direction of God. Even those petitions that might appear to be more about us, such as give us each day our daily bread, even these petitions are ultimately oriented toward God in that they express complete dependence on Him. Otherwise, we wouldn't be praying. And so Jesus' prayer is entirely God-centered, God-focused, and God-dependent. This is how Jesus encourages us to pray as well. Not in a man-centered, me-focused, self-dependent sort of way. What good would that be anyway? But in a God-centered, God-focused, and God-dependent way. Well, the question for us is, are, are we learning to pray this way? Imagine what good it would do for your soul if your heart would get behind such priorities in prayer more consistently than it does. And imagine what good it would do for your life. Think about this. If, if you pray as Jesus taught you in such a God-exalting way, Won't God be delighted to answer your prayer? Brothers and sisters, children of God, be encouraged by Jesus' prayer to pray to God as your good and gracious Father, focusing your prayers on Him and on His will, His desires, and trust that He will certainly hear and answer such prayer for the sake of His own glory and honor. And that brings us to our second point. Be encouraged to pray by Jesus' parable. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus sets before his disciples a parable, and then in verse 8, he gives them its lesson. He sets before them an imaginary situation in which a person goes to his friend's house in the middle of the night and asks him for three loaves of bread. A third person, we'll call him Peter has arrived on a journey at the home of the first person. Let's call him Simon. Simon has no food with which to show Peter hospitality. Well, in those days, hospitality was a big deal. So even though it's the middle of the night, Simon goes over to his friend Andrew's house, knocks on his door just loud enough to wake him up, and he asks him for a few loaves of bread. Well, understandably, put yourself in his shoes. Andrew is not too happy about Simon waking him up at such an inconvenient time of day, particularly 
particularly given that he lives in a one-room house and to get up, take out the bread and unlock the door, that runs the risk of waking up the whole entire household. And so Andrew's initial response is to tell Simon to go home and leave him alone. That's what he says because that's what he feels. And yet he does it anyway. He gets up out of bed and he gives Simon the bread and whatever else he needs to show Peter good hospitality. Well, why would Andrew do this? What gets him up out of bed? Well, Jesus points to two possible motivations in verse 8 of our text. One reason Andrew would grant Simon his request is because he is his friend. But Jesus then suggests that even if that wasn't a good enough reason that he is his friend, even then, even if that reason isn't strong enough, there's another consideration that will get him out of bed without fail. And that is a concern for his own honor and reputation. The word translated here in the NIV as boldness, in the ESV as impudence, in verse 8. More literally, it has to do with shamelessness. And it's a, it's a difficult word to translate, apparently, according to the experts. But the idea is, has to do with honor and shame. Again, to get, understand why this is important, hospitality in those days was a big deal. And so were honor and shame. If news were to get around that Andrew left Simon hanging so he couldn't provide proper hospitality, that would actually be a blot not only on Simon's reputation, but also, or sorry, not only on, I forget who I named who, not on, uh, it would be a blot on both their reputations. Uh, this concern to avoid shame and uphold his reputation and honor would motivate Andrew, as it would any of us in his shoes, to overcome the inconvenience of the time of day and to grant Simon's request. And so we could paraphrase the last part of verse 8. Because of his concern for his own honor, his, own, his concern that he wouldn't be shamed, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And any one of us in a similar situation where our honor is at stake, we would act in, a same, in the same way to preserve our reputation and to uphold the honor of our name, wouldn't we? There's something in us as human beings that makes us act to uphold our honor. And in some cases, it frequently it be- can become That impulse can become warped and twisted by selfishness and sin. And yet in itself, it can be a good thing to act to uphold one's honor. Well, in God, there is no sin to be found. In God, there is an unparalleled purity and irreproachable righteousness by which he acts to uphold the honor of his name and reputation. And the wonder of his superabounding and undeserved love for his own adopted children 
is that he has so bound himself to them by the blood of the new covenant, by Jesus' blood, that his holy zeal for the honor of his name is actually inseparably connected with his children's well-being. And so when God acts to uphold his honor, his children benefit. Again, in other words, when we pray for God to take action to vindicate his holy name, we may be sure that this will be for our own good since we are his children through faith. And so Jesus' parable encourages us to pray, you see, because God is in Christ even closer to us than a friend. And secondly, his concern for his own honor and reputation, far from being sinfully selfish, is in fact extravagantly beneficial for his children. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Brothers and sisters, it's for your own good to pray for God's glory. Do you believe that? Is that how you order your prayers? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will provide all you need for body and soul? Jesus' parable teaches us and encourages us to pray, brothers and sisters, to a father who is more faithful and more reliable than the best of earthly friends. Jesus' parable encourages you to pray to the God who is more honorable and more righteous than you can even imagine. And your God and Father is both willing and able to hear and answer your prayers, brothers and sisters, at any time of day, at any time of night. There's no time too inconvenient and no request too big or inconvenient for him because he's your father. He's your God through Christ. And in Christ, your God, your good, and God's glory, they are mutually inclusive. They go together. And so be encouraged by Jesus' parable to pray to God as your good and gracious Father, focusing your prayers on Him and His will, and trust that He will certainly hear and answer such prayer for the sake of His own honor and glory. For indeed, our God is a loving and generous Father who will freely give us what's best for us when we ask it of Him in faith. That brings us to our third point, to be encouraged to pray by Jesus' promise. In the final section of our text, Jesus encourages his disciples to pray with a promise in verse 9 and 10, if you look there, which he then pairs with an illustration and an application in verses 11 through 13. So look first at verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. 
Well, Jesus here urges his disciples to pray to their heavenly father with believing expectation that their father will certainly hear and answer. He promises that he most certainly will answer his praying children and he will grant them what they need. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And so you see, Jesus promises answers to prayer. He promises answers to prayer. This promise encourages you to pray. And at the same time, the way Jesus expresses this promise makes it abundantly clear that it calls for a response of active faith in order to its fulfillment. What I mean is this, for everyone who asks, receives. Not everyone receives, but everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so you see, Jesus promises answers to prayer. Jesus promises answers to prayer, and he promises answers to prayer. This prayer This promise encourages you to pray. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, God will give his grace and the Holy Spirit to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts. Why does the Catechism say this? Why does Jesus emphasize this? Because this is God's ordinary way. God ordinarily works through means. Brothers and sisters, then, be encouraged by Jesus' promise to pray because God's ordinary way is to give his good gifts to those who ask and seek for them in expectant prayer. And our God is a Father whom we can count on to give good gifts to his praying children. Jesus assures his disciples of this with an illustration and an application. Here, look with me at the final verses of our text, verse 11 to 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus here sets up up a comparison between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. He asks what earthly father will give harmful things, such as a serpent or a scorpion, when his child asks for something to eat. It's clearly a rhetorical question, implying that it's unthinkable that a father should respond in such an unreasonable and wicked way to such an unreasonable and natural request from his child. Even evil fathers know how to give their children good gifts. We can reasonably expect of an earthly father that he will give good gifts to his children. Though we know no earthly father is without sin. But if we expect this of earthly fathers, says Jesus, should we expect anything less from our good and gracious heavenly father? 
On the contrary, because our Heavenly Father is goodness and love in perfect measure, how much more we can and should expect the very best gifts from Him, even the gift of gifts, the Holy Spirit Himself. Brothers and sisters, as it says in Romans 8, verse 32, if God did not spare His own Son, but offered him up as an atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. How will he not also with his son graciously, not, graciously give us all that we need for body and soul? Because this good and gracious God is your God and Father through Jesus Christ, be encouraged to pray to him for all that he has taught you to pray trusting that he will certainly hear and answer such prayer for the sake of his own honor and glory. For indeed, our God is a loving and generous Father who will freely give us what's best for us when we ask it of him in the name of Jesus. Amen.